who am I? Um, I guess you'd say, you're Rob Vanderlist. Well, that's what I thought. I've always been called Robert. And then at a certain age, I discovered that's not actually my name. My name's Jack, <laughs> after my grandfather. And after my grandfather Jacobus. But my mum and dad didn't like the name Jack, so they called me that, but called me Jack Robert, and so I'm called Robert. And even this week, Helen went to the post office to pick up a parcel for me, and it all got confused because she said, have you got a parcel for Rob? But because my ID, photo ID, shows Jack, it confused them no end. They wouldn't tell her that they had one for Jack because that's not the same as Rob. So it still happens. When I was 14, I met God. And I, I became a follower of Jesus, and it transformed my life. I went to uni... But I felt I was, I was quite reserved and very quiet. And um, I think sometimes these days Helen would wish that I was a bit more like that again. And, uh, but I just felt very ordinary. And I thought, I, I don't really know who I am. Um, I didn't fit in easily in situations. If I went to a party, I sort of felt a bit of a blob there. And so I started trying to be like others. And, and I'd, I'd see guys who I, I really admired friends and I started trying to just be like them and imitate them and um, it, it still didn't work. Somehow their jokes when they told them were funny but if I told them they just fell flat and, uh, and it was very sad actually in some ways <laughs> um, and it just didn't work. But then over time, over a couple of years at uni, I, I started to discover something quite beautiful and I discovered a bit more of who I was created to be. Um, quite unique, and I realised I could relate to people on a much more personal level. Um, people started sharing things very personally, and it was a real privilege and honour to listen to what they were sharing and to be able to share with them as well. And I'd realised that not everybody is, is designed that way either. And so relation, relationships started to, develop, started to develop. I experienced that privilege... And over time, I started less trying to imitate others and discover more about who God had designed me uniquely to be. Uh, not to imitate others, but to complement them. I think God doesn't have a design cookie cutter, a divine cookie cutter. I think he makes us all beautifully, uniquely, because his character is to create. Um, I read this just yesterday. I've learned that if I use other people as my mirror, the image is always distorted, as it wasn't made like them. I thought that was quite beautiful. Um, I thought Steve said it beautifully a few weeks back when he said, rather than be a second-rate version of someone else, Jesus sets us free to be yourself, your true self, as he intended you to be. And then Kate alluded to it too. Um, she was sort of sharing about, uh, I think it was hospitality and um, who God had designed her to be. And she said, why am I like this? I should be more like this. But God doesn't make junk. He doesn't make our personality and temperament different to how it should be. And she was talking about multitasking and single tasking. And I'm, I'm the same. Um, Helen's a great multitasker. She can feed the baby, do the washing up and talk on the phone at the same time. I can't even ring someone and wait for them to answer and talk <laughs> because when they answer the phone, I'm engaged with my talking and they'll answer and I've, I've rung them and I've no idea who I'm talking to. 
<laughs> and I think Kate was sharing the same. But just after that, we had something quite beautiful. Helen and I were just watching something one evening on TV, and it talked about the brain of multitaskers and the brain of single-taskers. And they said single-taskers actually have an advantage with their brain. Their brain does better. I think multitaskers, it's a bit too much turmoil for their brains. So for us guys, or for those who just single-task, we're doing okay. <laughs> so I realised that it was so important to get to know Jesus and listen to him. So I'm not called to be like other people, but I'm, asked, I'm called to discover with Jesus who I am and for all of us who we are. So then I realised that discipling is not building a clone of ourselves but followers of Jesus. And I think there is a risk in church that we all sort of move in and narrow into being very similar. Whereas God, I think, is always wanting us to expand out and to be who he has uniquely created us to be. Um, the Gospels persistently introduce people to Jesus. And I love the fact that Philip, when he met Jesus, he went out, found Nathaniel, and didn't just tell him about Jesus, but brought him to meet Jesus. And how beautiful that was. We do resonate with certain characteristics that are in others. And they can be an example to us in many ways. But our call is to follow Jesus and to be who he uniquely designed us to be. And I think who I am finds its context in who God is. So God introduces himself as I am. And in Western culture we think... God just is. That's just an absolute statement that sits there. But for the Jews, it was a little different. Um, to the Jew, I am, did, didn't have a full stop after it, particularly. Um, but God introduced himself in what ways he is. Um, and he, he did that um, to be, and showed himself to be present and manifest in his attention, his care, his power and his grace. The term I am, relating to God, appears over 300 times in the Bible. First in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, and last in Revelation, chapter 22. So I think God's serious about saying who he is. And this has been um, sort of resulted in um, the term God being the great I am. God says, I am. And when he says, I am, he says, I am the Lord God Almighty. I am the Most High God, the Lord my Shepherd, the Lord that heals, the everlasting God, the Lord who provides, and the Lord who is peace. And there are others as well. And quite beautifully, in John 8, 58, Jesus applied the phrase to himself when he said, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And that caused a lot of consternation to quite a few Jews. God himself is unique. There's no one else in the universe like him. And he's made us in his image and we are unique. God knows the unique you he created you to be. Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 139, 15 and 16 say, 
My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure to me. I'd like to have a look at some events in history, as God has shared in the Bible. And God spoke to each of these people in a very unique way. There is no formula um, as we go through. Hopefully we get to realise that. And in that unique relationship that came out of that, something very special happened. First of all, Moses. So God spoke to him from a, within a burning bush, and the bush didn't burn away. So you'd think, oh, well, every time God speaks, he'll do it through a burning bush. Not at all. But for Moses, that's how God related to him. So Moses was scared of what God called him to do, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. He felt inadequate and just not good enough. But then he got to know God, and he spent time face-to-face with God so intensely that it says that his face actually shone. Exodus 34, 29 to 30 says, Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, with God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. So in that relationship was so intimate that Moses was transformed in that beautiful way. But it was the intimacy of that relationship that then something beautiful that's always really struck me came out. Because Moses developed a beautiful pastoral heart. In Exodus 32, 7-14 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a moulded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that you brought out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I'll make of you a great nation. But something beautiful happened. I I get the impression that Moses disobeyed God. He didn't leave him alone. He stayed. He said, I've got a bit more to say. (laughs) And he said, Then Moses pleaded with Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? (laughs) whom you have brought from the land of Egypt with great power, with mighty hand. I don't know if I'd have the cheek and the courage to do this, but I love the way Moses did it. Um, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your your fierce wrath and relent from this harm uh, to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. 
So the Lord relented from the harm which he had said he would do to his people. Then Exodus 33, 15 to 17 says, Then he, that's Moses, said to him, God, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then shall we know that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will always do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. I think that was a phenomenal interaction. It saved Israel, the people of Israel, apart from Moses and his family. And God says, I know you by name. God knows who we are. In that relationship, God responded to Moses in a beautiful way. Moses had that pastoral heart that saved his people, quite unique. King David, um, from the Old Testament, so he started off as pretty well a nobody. Um, And God taught him, I think the way God came to him, was not a burning bush, but he taught him in the countryside while he was looking after his father's sheep. Considered a nobody. The prophet Samuel went to, actually Bethlehem, to find... Um, a man called Jesse and Jesse had sons and God had told Samuel that one of those sons was going to be anointed as the next king of Israel so Jesse brings out all his sons he lines them up it's a bit like a beauty pageant when you read it I guess it's called a handsome pageant and all these sons sort of parade through and Samuel says oh yeah this will be him He's, he looks you know, strong, handsome, great guy no, God said no got to the end none of them so I presume Samuel said well, what do I do now? And, and so he said to Jesse, is that all your sons? Oh, no, that's right. We've got one out in the paddock. And he's looking after the sheep. So they brought David in and he was the one. But he was so unimpressive that his father hadn't even brought him in. As, and he thought that he would become anointed as king. And David loved and trusted God. And he'd grown in that relationship out in the fields. And just after that anointing, sometime after that, he was confronted as he went to visit his brothers um, who were at war with Goliath. And so David thought, this giant, he's abusing God. God's not going to stand for that. And and he said, I'll go and fight him, this this little runt of a a guy that nobody thought was worth anything. And so they piled all this armour on him and he's walking around and thinking, yeah, I'll go and have a go with this giant. And that's what they did. That's what you do. You put the armour on and you go and fight. And David said, this is not for me. This is not how it works. He was, again, uniquely being who God had called him to be. So he just took his sling, picked up some stones, and he worked with what God was doing. He was seen as arrogant, and yet he saved Israel. And again, I love Psalm 78, 72 says, David himself saying, I shepherded them with integrity of heart, and skillful hands. And that's a beautiful statement of how God was working through him. A um, young man named Joseph. And God spoke to him through dreams. Again, very different, very unique. Um, he, he was seen as quite arrogant by his brothers and they ostracised him. They didn't want him. And actually got the chance to, to make money out of him and get rid of him. They sold him off to slavery. <laughs> and um, he, so he ended up there. He didn't have any choice in it. And started to do well and, and honour his master when his master's wife developed a crush for him. Um, 
And I can imagine as being a young man, a nobody, suddenly his master's wife wants to go to bed with him. And, and this is, he's now somebody. But he honoured God and he respected his master and he said no. And then what happens is he's falsely accused of attempted rape and he's thrown in prison. Um, I'm not sure how long he was in prison. It's estimated probably between 2 and 12 years that he's in there. Despite being innocent, being respectful and living for God. He still ended up in a pretty awful prison. Um, but he still had a heart for his people and he worked with what God was doing. And again, he saved Israel from famine. God used him in a beautiful way. Another one of people I, 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 I love reading about and respect in the, the Bible is King Jehoshaphat. So he was king of Judah um, as Israel came into the promised land. And again, God spoke to him as he led his people to fast and pray. So again, quite unique. And um, the, the armies around them were, were building up and had combined to, to fight and, and destroy the Jews. And, and there were hordes of them, because they combined, and Israel had been um, obedient to God, hadn't um, got rid of them as they came through, and now they're stuck with this problem. They, they had no chance, as far as an army goes, of defeating this huge band of enemy. And being aware they were strategically overwhelmed and didn't stand a chance, Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat knew he didn't have an answer to this problem. So he called his people and he led them to fast and pray. And it was God who fought for them. And actually, the enemy turned on each other and killed each other. And when um, King Jehoshaphat and his people went out praising God, they found the enemy had all slaughtered themselves. And there was nothing for them to do apart from keep praising God. They had just done what God had called them to do. Mother, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, so what did God, how did he relate to her? He sent an angel to speak to her. God invited this young Jewish woman to take on the role as being mother to his own, very own son. I, I've always thought that's a really sweet, nice story, till I stopped and thought about it. And I think I've sort of kept it in a bit of a sterile box, thinking this young lady, probably about 13, 14-ish, um, she's engaged to be married, is going to now go and tell her um, engagement then was like a contract of marriage. You're going to go and tell her to be husband, I'm pregnant. And, and that would be hard today, but let alone back in there. So what was the punishment? Being stoned, uh, rejected, failure of her marriage. But she said, God, I'm available. And she made herself available through that in a beautiful way. Again, uniquely her. And Anna and Simeon, uh, an older couple who are serving in the temple in a beautiful way. So how did God relate to them? The Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. And it was 84, so they're pretty early. They're retired, I imagine, just about. Um, and retirement's really good. I, I can vouch for that. But they'd waited basically their lives for this one moment. And Jesus was brought to them and they blessed him. And it was like... They'd lived all their lives for this one moment, almost. The job was done, and Simeon basically says, now we can die, we've done, that's so beautiful. We've done what we had to do. But they waited 80 years for what God was doing. 
So these heroes of the faith have generally been basically nobody special until they made themselves available to God and grew in their relationship with him. All these people discovered who God created them to be and they actually changed history by knowing God and being available to him, each in their own unique way. Um, Even though we're all unique, and there are so many of us in the world, God knows who we are, knows us by name, and often gives us a new name. God says, I know you by name. Um, The the movie The Chosen, I I love watching. And then, I think it's the second, uh, second or third one, Jesus is camping up in the hills. He's got his little campsite, his tent, and little Abigail goes exploring. She's a little young girl. She goes exploring. She finds his campsite. Doesn't find him yet, but finds his campsite and has this beautiful um, sort of exploring his campsite. And then she goes to her friend Joshua, little boy, son age. She says, come, come, come and see what I found. And so next day they go off together. And Joshua is very timid and, and, and quite insecure. And he's saying, oh, I don't think we should do this. Um, you know, what if he's a terrible person? What if he's a murderer? And, and he's so anxious and so insecure. And then they get to know Jesus and he has this beautiful interaction, as I imagine he would have with children up, up in his campsite. And they're having these conversations. And eventually Joshua takes the courage to say something. And in a beautiful way, Jesus just stops and he says, Ah, Joshua the brave has spoken. And he calls him to braveness from his timidness. There are four instances that I'm aware of in the Bible where God changed names and it seems to reflect that part of the character or life that was missing as Jesus, as the chosen, I think, portray that so beautifully. Joshua was miss, missing his braveness but Jesus called it for him. Um, Ab- Abram and Sarai and uh, they were a couple who didn't have any children and back then that was a real problem and It was a massive loss for them. Um, So what was missing was their fertility. And God comes and he says, Abram, which means exalted father, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And again in chapter 17, it says Sarai, which means my princess. I'm going to change you to Sarah, which means mother of nations. Jacob um, young man, he, he really had some things missing. He lied and deceived his brother and his father. So his integrity and doing things God's way was missing. He wanted to do it his own way. And in Genesis 32, God changes Jacob, which means supplanter. That means taking someone else's place or taking what belongs to someone else. He said, your new name is Israel, and that is having power with God. And the last one is Simon Peter. And again, in The Chosen, it describes him quite beautifully. Um, He's not very educated, he's impetuous, he's outspoken, and he keeps making all these blunders, getting himself into problems. So he's missing that solidness, that reliability. And in John 1, Jesus says, Simon, which means God has heard. Jesus says, I'm changing your name to Cephas, which means rock. Solidness. So I think God's way of looking at names is not like when we, um, quite a few people pray about what to call their children's names, which is really beautiful. And some people um, 
just pick a name that sounds nice. And usually someone that you haven't known at school who's one of those awful people you never want to call your kid after. And, but God, God doesn't do it that way. He calls us to who we are in character and purpose, his purpose. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by, by your name, you are mine. And Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except he who receives it. So I wonder what my new name will be, but I'm confident it will describe who I am in God, made in his image. God wants to give us a new name. He calls us to wholeness and completeness in him, to enrich us in character and perfection in him. Um, I'm quite guilty of this, and I think many of us are. When we see what's missing in others, we're inclined to point it out to them and to talk to others pointing it out to them, so as long as they know as well. But God's different. He's got a new name which calls us to wholeness. God says, I know you, I chose you, I treasure you. God knows us and calls us to be available. Romans 12 says, well-known verse, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I guess a living sacrifice, um, one of the examples I could think of that was people who go to fight to protect other people. They go with their lives. They're willing to lay their lives down for others. How beautiful that is. And I guess in another way, a living sacrifice is like stepping on the offering plate. So we've got to step into the flower pot. God, you know, today I'm yours. And um, I, I realise that in the past at times um, I'm trying to, to live out but I see myself as an employee of God. I come at the beginning of the day, tell me the day, tell me what to do, God. I'll come back at night and check that you're happy with what I've done. But I don't think it's that, because there's a bit more self-effort in that. I think it's actually trying to be aware, aware of what God's doing and part of what he's doing. Um, Jesus did nothing of himself but what the Father was doing. And I think Norman Grubb, a missionary in Africa, a leader of the WEC mystery, ministry summed this up beautifully in his prayer which was good morning lord what are you doing what are you up to today can i be part of it thank you so i'd like to give some just recent examples of uh, more recent um, people who have lived and seen their uniqueness in how they've lived for god and and just a few examples of that antonia stradivari lived in 17th century italy uh, in Cremona, which was famous for its music. But he couldn't sing or play. He had this really squeaky high voice, apparently. So he took violin lessons, and the neighbours persuaded his parents to make him stop. <laughs> so he was teased about the only talent he had 
was whittling with wood. I guess with a knife, he was just whittling with wood. But he begged to be apprenticed to Amati, the world-famous violin maker. So his whittling turned into carving violins, striving to make each one better than the one before. And it's quoted, he realised that the desire to strive for excellence was a gift from God. It was characterised by respect for quality and a yearning to use God's gifts in a way that pleased him. Stradivari highlighted his passion for excellence with the following words, when any master holds twixt chin and hand a violin of mine, he will be glad that Stradivari lived, made violins and made them of the best. If my hand slacked, I should rob God since he is the fullest good. Quite unique, not something that I'd necessarily think of, of how to, to worship and honour God, but Stradivari did it in the way God had created him to be. Eric Little um, was known, he's a Scottish guy, known as the Flying Scotsman because he ran in the Olympics and, and he broke records. Um, his story is featured in the film Chariots of Fire. So he was an Olympic runner, lived to honour God, and in this context, he chose not to compete in the 100 metre um, heats because they were run on a Sunday and, and he felt that was not honouring to God for him. And he was the one who said, when I run fast, I feel God's pleasure. And a couple of his other quotes are, I believe God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast. And because he didn't get to compete in the uh, 100 metres, he ran the 200, um, or he ran, I think it was, might have been just the 400, but he actually won the gold medal in the 400. And he said, the secret of my success over the 400 metres is that I run the first 200 metres as fast as I can. Then for the second 200 metres, with God's help, I run faster. <laughs> so he actually quite surprisingly won the medal in the 400 metres when he was a 100 metre sprinter. And at the height of his running career, when he was just so successful, he went off to be a missionary in China. And he says, In the dust of defeat, as well as the laurels of victory, there is a glory to be found if one has done his best. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's um, a beautiful um, devotion I, I read a while back um, in Max Licardo's, one of his little devotion books, I, lo I love reading um, his insights. And he, he talks about um, Don Cola Gomez and making beautiful music. My heart, O oh God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. at Psalm 108. Some kids in Katura, or Satura, on the outskirts of Asuncion, I think you've read that's a Paraguay, the capital of Paraguay, are making music with their trash. Other orchestras fine-tune their maple cellos or brass tubers, not this band. They play Beethoven sonatas with plastic buckets, washtubs and drain pipes. On their side of the garbage, and um, apparently there are about 2,500 families living on this garbage heap and trying to make a living out of the garbage. Um, is, garbage is the only crop to harvest. Garbage pickers sort and sell refuse for pennies a pound. Many of them have met the same fate as the trash. They've been tossed out and discarded. But now, thanks to Don, Don Cola Gomez, they're making music. Gomez is a trash worker with 
and a carpenter. He's never seen, heard or held a violin in his life. Yet when someone described the instrument, his untutored craftsman took a paint can and an oven tray into his tiny workshop and made a violin. His next instrument was a cello. He fashioned the body out of an oil barrel and made tuning knobs from a hairbrush, the heel of a shoe and a wooden spoon. Thanks to the Stradivarius, the junk gets a new chance and so do the kids who live among it. Since the day their story hit the news, they've been tutored by maestros, featured on national television programs and have gone on a world tour. They've been called the Landfield Harmonic and also the Recycled Orchestra of Satura. We would also call them a picture of God's grace. Again, he knew who he was uniquely made by God. And the last example I'd like to give is one of my own. I, um, when I was working at the hospital here, we were working long hours and <clears throat> at times we were struggling to get enough sleep. So we, we found this little trick of having breakfast before you go to bed. You can sleep a bit longer, have a shower and race off to work in the morning. And so I used to sleep as late as I could and, and then race off to work. But um, for three months I was living with two other guys and... Um, Lindsay McKenzie was one of the guys, and Lindsay had come over from Melbourne to be a manager at the Kmart here, which was soon after it was built. And Lindsay came over, and he wore his suit, and you know, very few of us wore suits, even at the hospital we didn't wear suits then, but he wore his suit. And I said to Helen, how do you remember Lindsay? And she said, oh, yeah, he was very prim and proper and clean-cut young businessman. Well, one of the problems was that every morning Lindsay would set his alarm for 6.30, and I got up at 7.30, but it wouldn't wake him up, and I'm in the other room, and this clock wakes me up and it goes on and on and on. So I got up, went over and switched it off in Lindsay's room and said, oh, you know, why, why do you set your alarm clock so early? And he said, oh, I'm getting up to iron my shirts. Well, he never did. And morning after morning, I'm going in, we're having the same conversation. <laughs> That's what I can clearly remember about Lindsay. He, he wore very neat shirts, but he didn't iron them at 6.30 in the morning, but he was always going to. Well, he went to Wet College and... Um, went off to, to Spain as a missionary and he understood that God had called him to, to minister to the, the Spanish, um, very strong um, Catholic, traditional Catholic um, background and it was, it was quite difficult. But um, Lindsay tells a beautiful story and I, I don't have time to tell you the whole story about a guy who, um, a, a drug addict who stopped him in the street and they started a conversation and, and, and this drug addict was going to jail on... Monday or Tuesday, this was Friday, unless he had uh, a, form, a, a permanent residence and he was living on the streets. And so he said to Lindsay, can I come and live with you? And, and Lindsay, being very prim and proper, thought, this is not going to work. And so he said, well, yes, if you, here's my address, if you come on 9 o'clock on Monday and he thought, that gets me out of it because this guy would be so unreliable, by Monday he wouldn't know where he was and um, he, he won't come so I'll just get on with what God's called me to do. Well, the guy turned up, 9 o'clock Monday morning. And from that started Battelle, which is a drug rehab centre in 24 different countries, 104 centres around the world, a Christian community for men, women and families affected by drug and alcohol addiction and homelessness. And um, so for mar marginalised people, and, and Lindsay was the last person I would have picked to be doing that, but doing it so beautifully. And God has used him in amazing ways. So what is God's purpose for your life and my life? 
As I focus on Jesus, my paradigm shifts. No longer is my life my own. Instead, I realise with more clarity that I was created uniquely by him, for him. So what, God, are you doing? Where do I fit in? Um, Russ shared last week, God's church is a church where everyone has a role to play. There are no spectators. God didn't design it that way. As we sang this morning, I thought, this is such a taste of heaven. When I get to heaven, I'll be able to sing in harmony. And I don't know how many harmonies there are in music, but I'm sure God has many more. We'll all have a, a harmony to sing, to be part of the music. I love John Wesley's prayer. This was 1755. He prayed, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I feel I, I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Again, Russ quoted um, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is the, apparently the word poema, um, which means something God has made, and it can be likened to poem, poetry. We are his poetry, uniquely so. The Lord is crazy about you and about me. What is most valuable is not what we have in our lives, but who we have in our lives. I'd like to um, just play a reflective song by Casting Crowns, which is also called Who Am I? Father, thank you that the context of who we are is who you are and what you've done in our lives. Father, help us to know who we are and discover more and more of you and how we live in that context and who you've made us to be to serve you and be part of what you're doing. Father, thank you so much for what you've done, what you've given us. Amen.